If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans 2 uh, to begin our time together. And then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, which is not too uh, far from Romans. So um, just actually the next book over. But uh, we'll start in Romans 2 and then we'll begin. Uh, we'll go from there to Romans 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 in a little bit. Um, the, today, last week and today have been very challenging um, messages to deliver. I haven't delivered this one yet, but I'll go ahead and, get, go ahead and tell you it's not going to be um, the normal message uh, that we might usually have here at the church because it deals with some subjects and some, some uh, conversations that are easy to avoid. Uh, but I really believe that if we are truly trying to see um, the image of God restored, We've got to have these conversations. Now, if you're coming in with us, if you haven't been with us before, if you've missed a few weeks, you're coming in at the end of the movie, uh, which isn't a bad thing. Sometimes the best part of the movie is the very end. Sometimes not so much. So I'll let you judge that for uh, how this goes. Uh, we've spent five weeks now um, around the conversation of the image of God, what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to be restored to God's image. And if you want to catch up, you can find on our website, um, uh, on our Facebook page, archived messages from the last couple of weeks. Uh, I really encourage you to do that uh, because we've had some really powerful conversations around what it means to be made in the image of God and what it means to be restored to the image of God because of what sin has done to us uh, and, and our fallen nature. Um, but to get us kind of started and to get us in the right place, um, I think all of us in some way, uh, shape or form, have had our part in making something. Uh, we've all created something, made something, produced something in our own way. Uh, I think it's safe to say, and I think you'll agree, that universally and on a general level, anybody who's ever made anything shares a similar motive or intent for whatever they've made. Now, it may be a completely separate thing from someone else's creation or someone else's product, but the desire that we have for that thing that we've made, our intentions behind making it and, and producing it and, and sharing it um, are very similar. And, and I think we can, we can get to it, we can think about it in, in this way. If you've ever made or prepared a meal uh, for yourself or your family, for a holiday or for an event, um, I, I think it's pretty much given that your intentions were to make something that was good, right? Uh, you uh, wanted something to be well-received and you were anxious, you were curious, you were hopeful uh, and, and anticipating some feedback, uh, especially maybe if it was your first time cooking for someone or first time preparing for someone, or maybe your family was hosting another's or maybe helping out with an event, church event or a school event. Uh, we are anxious, and I think it's a pretty low bar to say that we hope that people think it's good. I think that's pretty safe. Uh, nobody says, hey, I hope this is bad. I mean, maybe you do, but that takes some, a weird sense of humor. Um, don't do that if you invite me over, right? Um, I won't do that to y'all either, so we have that agreement. Um, that would be funny for at least once, but maybe not after that. Um, if you build something, if you make something with your hands, it's a gift, or maybe you're building it for pay um, from a small product or a big product, um, your intentions are to build something that's going to serve its purpose. You want to build something that's going to be well-received. If your job involves putting out a product that people digest or respond to or process in some way, if you're a writer or a teacher, or a choreographer, a coach, maybe you're a preacher, I don't know, you deliver content on a regular basis and you want to put something out there that's appreciated, that's liked, and that's utilized in this intended way. I think that's an agreement we can make. Now, as makers of all sorts of things, whether you're a baker or a cook, a builder, a contractor, an author, a designer, however you would phrase it, ultimately, when you boil it down, all down, as a creator, you do it because or with hopes that your product is 
met or exceeds expectations that you set for it. Maybe in the most simple of summations, you want it to be good. Uh, you, want it, you want to feel good about it as well. You want someone to feel good about it, and you want to feel good about what you put out there. You want others to think good about it as well. As somebody who is constantly putting things out there for others to listen to and consume and hopefully respond to or find some use from, it's a vulnerable feeling. I have to admit, uh, as you know good and well, there's always going to be someone who's loud in all the wrong ways. None of you are ever like this, but in the past, um, that there, there's that relative or there's that guest at that holiday dinner. There's that participant whose vision did not align with yours, uh, that, that you, know, you organized the event and they showed up and they didn't like the way you did it or the ideas that you had. You know, I've only been in this for a few years, but I could write a book about some of the sideways things that comes out of people's mouths sometimes in response, and that's not the good kind, right? Um, but, but that's kind of part of the role that you assume when you are making something, that you're going to put yourself out there and, and sometimes you're going to get some feedback that you didn't really want, whether it's warranted or not. Uh, over the last few years, as I've put more of my thoughts on screens and, and uh, writing for people to read and reread and follow along uh, on top of every occasion when I'm up here uh, or, and I know somebody's new is listening, it, it makes me very vulnerable, but also it's required and, and, and compelled me to work that much harder um, because I think we can all agree. If you make something, you want it to be worth something. You want it to be valuable. You want someone to appreciate it and you want to feel good about it. You want it to be good. If your time is in it, if your hands are on it, if your name is on it, part of you is in it. You go with it and you feel like that's part of you, right? Whether it's something very small or whether it's something very big, regardless if it was from you you go with it and you kind of, your feelings are attached to it, right? Now, maybe it's just me, but I really think that all of us who regularly or have ever made anything, whether it was for one person or a hundred people, uh, we've contributed to something as a part of a team even. Uh, I think we can all relate to this. And, and over the past few weeks, we've been in this series called The Image of God. Uh, and I wanted to start this conversation, uh, this conclusion to the conversation with this approach, because I think it helps us see through the eyes of God just a little bit. And I think it helps us see his image within us when we talk about wanting something that we made to be good. Over the past month, we've sought his face because the Bible tells us that God is our creator, God is our maker, God is our designer. We all bear his image. We all bear his thumbprints, not simply in how we look, but how we are, our makeup, our instincts, our capacities for will and reason and expression, our ingenuity, our creativity. Now, some deny this notion. Plenty of people do not believe that God is their creator, that there is even a God. Some explain away humanity's existence and obvious position of influence over creation. But I would argue, I would argue that our shared or this shared desire for success and this shared frustration when we fall short is actually one of the greatest bits of evidence for God and of him as our creator and of us as his Creation. Now, I take the Bible for its word. I believe what it says is true. But for those out there that may doubt that, I believe that this truth, that we have a shared desire for success, a shared frustration, let me fall short. I believe this is actually evidence for the existence of God and more importantly, for God being our creator and us being his creation. Now, let me explain. What, what does the Bible teach us about God's thoughts towards us, God's creative design over us? The Bible teaches us that we are made in his image. But what else does that creation story tell us? 
A few weeks ago, we looked at this scripture where the Bible says God created man in his image, and that's man plural, humanity. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. So both men and women in the image of God, equally you know, made by him, in the image of God, completing the image when together distinctly and uniquely representing him. So we, we hear this from Genesis, and what does the Bible tell us just after that? And God saw everything that he made, not just people, but the garden and the, the world, of course, the universe, everything that we could ever, you know, all, all of creation and its existence from the stars, uh, infinite space to our planet, of course. God saw what he made and behold, it was very good. Now, God, his intentions behind creating was that it would be good, not just to him, but to everybody else. God is our creator, as our maker, as the maker, being perfect salt to make everything as perfect as it could be. He knew nothing less, of course, and he did that. But we know what happened after that. We've learned over the past few weeks what happened. Mankind rebelled and fell from God's glory, tarnished his image, marred in it sin, and fell under a curse and a poison. Now, God could have maybe made a way for this not to happen, but God allowed humans to have free will because God made us in his image. So we had that free will, that reason, that sense of choice. And of course, humanity chose all the wrong things. But what's really important to understand from Genesis 3 forward, our sin did not impact God's role above us nor his intent for us. That when we sinned, God did not all of a sudden take his hands off of the world and say, I'm done with that. I'm through with them or beyond that, he didn't judge us, but rather he went to work to redeem us. Isn't that incredible? That our sin did not impact God's role above us nor his intent for us because God still loved and cared and had a plan for an intention to restore creation. We began this series with a look at Psalm 139, and you'll remember from that very famous passage of Scripture that the Scripture tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that we are forever wired to God. This is post-fall, by the way. Does this conflict with the fact the Bible teaches us and, and that we believe that we are born into sin? Not at all. Actually, it serves to further confirm God's goodness and mercy and purity in ways that are too rich for us to comprehend and ways that are too good for us. I mean, think about this. Knowing the consequences of sin, God not only allowed humanity to persist, he continued to be sovereign over each future sinner, making and blessing them us in his image. Isn't that remarkable? Knowing what sin had done and would do, God continued to make and bless us in his image. Sharing his image with fallen creatures. Creatures that would do terrible things in and to his image. Because all the while, through this broken lineage of fallen species, God was working to restore humanity. Of course, we know how he did that. He became one of us to bring everything full circle, becoming like Adam. He undid Adam's curse and paid for Adam's sin, making it possible for us to all be his once again. And, and again, that is the good news. That is the gospel. That is what is too good for us, yet God gives it to us. Now, there are those who still say, well, there's no hard proof. Where's the scientific proof of it all? Well, I'll give you one better. I believe there is proof within the heart of every human being, this shared conviction 
that can be buried or suppressed, but is easily and often awakened at the notion or revelation of falling short of expectations and feeling shame. That sense within all of us that wants to put something good out there, that wants to be received as good, comes from this shared sense of wanting to succeed and this shared frustration when we don't succeed. There is within all of us a conscience, a conscience that is that from that thumbprint of God, which may be influenced by time and culture, but more importantly, is accountable to a much older and much higher presence and standard. Every human being bears this conscience as a part of the image of God impressed on everyone. Even in the most biblical, illiterate, and morally depraved cultures, just the faintest exposure to God and his standard can bring awareness and awaken accountability to him. It's been proven. We're going to look at a few passages of scripture this morning. First, we've opened up to Romans 2 because in this book, Paul is building his case for the gospel and why it should and why it can make an impact on the whole world. He opens up with the book with a pretty grim depiction of creation, especially the pagan or non-Jewish world, because they had never been exposed to the standards of God as revealed in the Old Testament. And for that reason, many Jewish Christians thought it was a fool's errand to try to take the gospel to these people that had never heard of God and whose lifestyles were far from God. Paul quickly addresses, however, that it's just because the Jews had the law didn't mean they followed the law. They broke it into pieces regularly, which is why God sent a Savior, not just a Jewish Savior, but a global and universal Savior. And Paul's argument that even those who had never heard of Yahweh, never heard of Abraham, Moses, David, or Judaism, Paul said they will and they can respond to Jesus. He appeals to the fact that every human has a conscience as a part of God's wiring of us all. And whether or not there's any knowledge of what is old, what is new can save and br- or bring people to the saving knowledge, can, br- can appeal to that sense of wanting to be better and frustration when we can't do better. He makes it very clear that while a conscience does not guarantee conviction or repentance, it can when coupled with exposure and clarity, which is his whole aim for the book of Romans. He's writing to the upstart church at Rome, being the epicenter of the world. If Rome could get this right, the whole world could get it right. Pretty lofty goal, I know, but Paul was crazy enough to believe that. If you have your Bibles open, look down at verse 14 through uh, 16. Again, I encourage you to read this whole passage. We'll look at different portions of it in just a minute. But verse 14 through 15, we're jumping into that conversation that Paul's having about how they didn't believe that the Gentiles could believe or didn't believe they could, could, could come to Christ. They were too far gone. But then Paul says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law or never heard of the law or what God said was right or wrong, by nature do things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So what he's saying there is that when we feel that sense of, I should do better, I can do better, I can change this or I can work on that, that sense of conviction, that sense from our conscience is proof that there is a higher standard. There is a a moral alt that all of us are accountable to, whether exposed to certain histories or not. 
that all of us are wired to this higher standard, this heavenly standard. And just enough exposure can get us pointed in the right direction. He says in verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. This sense of, you know what, that was wrong. Well, how do you know it's wrong? It just feels wrong. And not every feeling is necessarily right, but that sense of, hey, this isn't right or this could be better is an awareness within all of us. Something's not right, but somewhere out there, there is right. Verse 16, Paul says, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, pointing to the fact that ultimately we are all held accountable to Jesus Christ, that nobody is excused from his jurisdiction, which is all the more imperative why everybody hear the gospel, right? Now, Paul's message here is that every human being has the capacity for change. The church has a mandate to spread its message because we will all be held accountable to God's standard one day. What he even more so alludes to here is that this sense of shame and frustration that we all exhibit is a sigh and a cry of every heart longing for more, longing to be restored to the image of God. Now, that's Paul's argument. The same longing is within every heart to this day and everyone we're ever eye to eye with in our own reflection in the mirror. A lot can be said about our current generation's moral decline. But as we've studied over the past month, that has been humanity's drift since they first moved east of Eden back in Genesis 4. Last week, we peeled back the curtain and we sat under Revelation, which gives us a raw and unfiltered picture of our world facing judgment, influenced by the beast, deceived by the dragon. The goal of this series has always been about understanding where we went wrong and what we continue to get wrong as a people, as men, as women, as society, as culture. But it was also to show that our capacity and desire is to do better, to be better, to be restored to the image of God and hopefully awaken within all of us this longing. Because whether we believe it or not, God is working to redeem us. He has not given up. He is the ultimate creator of maker of all. He sees humanity as the apple of his eye, the desire of his heart, and his heart beats to see us delight in and walk after his image. He wants to see us filled with his goodness, receiving all of his goodness that he has for us. I love Psalm 23, verse six. The Bible tells us that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And that word follow is really weak. It really should be chase or run or pursue me all the days of my life. I believe that every day this earth continues to spin. This is true about God. He is pursuing you. He is following you. He is running after you. Do I believe there is a day coming when the story that began in Genesis three will come to an end? Yes, Romans 2.16 makes that very clear. There is a judgment. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of consummation. But hear this very clear. This isn't because God is going to get tired of pursuing us. God will have pursued and engaged with billions throughout history. He will want to fulfill his promise of total redemption and total restoration. It's not a question of, the, it's not an issue that God's going to get tired or God's going to give up or God's going to say the heck with it. Jesus' death provided plenty of grace. 
I want you to understand this. When Jesus died, when God in flesh poured out his blood on the cross, his blood is sufficient in every way for everyone. Now, I know we lose our patience with people. We lose our patience with people we love, much less people we love less, right? I mean, it's hard for us to really think about how God thinks, but I want you to know his blood is sufficient from forbearance with sin to provision for sin. There's no question whether God is patient enough or God has provided enough. God is able, but the thing is, God has made a promise to all who suffer, to all who sin, to all who wait, to all who've died in him. He has provided hope and salvation by spirit. He will issue in full and rid this earth of its curse completely. Until that day comes, however, what we've learned over the past month is that this image still reflects the heart of God. That as the great painter put on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, God continues to reach out to us. God is reaching and pursuing to restore us to his image. And within the heart of every one of us, we are desperately longing for him just the same. Yet sin, though a gap very small in the picture, sin, a powerful force that works to separate us every day. There are those who observe our world today and they think the best days are behind it. There is this notion within the church to give up, maybe even give in. But church, we can't do this because God has not given up. And I believe that this truth remains that if only his word could be spread, if only his spirit could move among and through his people, that even the most depraved of cultures, even the most sinful of societies could be one to him. At the beginning of Romans 2, the first few verses, if you read those, uh, Paul addresses a church that is failing to recognize grace that has saved them and fails to be compelled to extend that same grace to others. He tells us that it's the kindness of God that can lead us and does lead us to repentance and that we should not be so judgmental in the same sense that God has been so good to us. But we can't presume on his kindness. What's incredible about this letter to this church is that the Roman Empire, the pagan world at that time, the Roman Empire was egregiously and elaborately steeped in moral sin in ways that were absolutely shocking and horrifying. Jewish Christians were organizing this church and they did not have any confidence that Gentiles could be saved. Definitely that they would be saved. The Jewish communities were always closed off from Gentiles for a reason because Gentiles were so egregiously and elaborately and proudly sinning in ways that would make even the most far out person blush. But the Christian mandate was different. The Christian mandate was to welcome all, to love all, to worship alongside all, to teach all and show all and confess alongside all that we are all sinners and can be saved by the same grace. This is why I believe that our current mission isn't hopeless. Our current world isn't a lost cause because the work the church did the first century reminds us of what is possible with God As bad or far gone or unlike it used to be, as you may consider our current world, I want to just, I'm not over-exaggerating, it's been much worse before. Because the world, because most of the world believed it was in the right in those days. The barrier of ever getting things right seemed insurmountable. 
Now, maybe you think the whole idea of society having uh, went in the wrong direction, overblown, or maybe you think we're just a gust away from being completely gone. Truth be told, there's a lot that is troubling and concerning. In church, we can't ignore it is not our problem. But also we can't vilify or demonize those who are unlike us because simply many have not grew up in the world that you grew up in or the world that I grew up in. And they don't know the things that we take for granted. Does that make it right? Of course not. Perhaps what is most striking about our current world and maybe more unsettling or even offensive to some is how averse and in some ways how defiant our culture is towards our Christian worldview, which has made us a little bit less inclined to think this mission is possible, that this mission can be successful. Where, that, where there is the most friction and tension is not in the realm of economics or education, but when it comes to morality, when it comes to ethics, Specifically, when it comes to the Christian convictions about sexuality, there have been tremendous amount of pressure on the church for, in culture over the past 20 or 30 years to shift its convictions and policies regarding sexuality. At the same time, there has been a recent standstorm within the church about its own negligence towards sin that had been allowed to run rampant just because they did not seem as taboo. Now, I want to share a little inside baseball just because I feel like we should talk about this because we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. This might not be relevant to you, but I think we should talk about it. The SBC, which I'm a very firm believer in and supporter of and believe does more for the kingdom of God than any other uh, Christian organization on the world, on the planet. The SBC has long prided itself in honoring biblical convictions, but recent confessions have revealed that plenty have went awry in our own house. Hundreds of allegations of male to female abuse have sprouted in recent years, which leadership have diligently worked to cover up or downplay, even apologize for. Meanwhile, we wring our hands over things the Bible says are abominations. But I I want you to know this because I want you to pray for this. Just in the last few months, both Russell Moore, one of the greatest theologians in the Baptist Association, and Beth Moore, who has been a Bible teacher to many of you ladies and could teach men a few things as well. Both of them have been ousted by the convention because of their advocacy for reform and support for the abused. Meanwhile, a former president and major figure to this day in the convention has covered up rape and spoke narrowly of women in ministry, literally left his office with a box of HR records and no outrage at all. We'll point to a world as being on the brink of moral decay because of unnatural, non-heterosexual relationships, which should be concerning. But shouldn't we be equally concerned about how men and women are being raised in a culture where rather than understanding the harmony of our genders and the responsibility towards one another and the sacredness of sexuality? But we're silent about that. Why is there duplicity? And the guilt might not be yours, but the burden is. The burden is ours. I bring this up because I want us to be on the right side of history. My point is, church, we cannot be appalled by some things, but not all things when it comes to moral rot. Our voice must be pure if our world, if we are ever to see our world become pure. But the reality is that we aren't all pure ourselves. We just sin in ways that we've accepted as part of who we are. In a few verses, verses 17 through 24, Paul confronts the Jewish Christians who ignore the potential to sin within them 
while being appalled at the sin in others. Listen to this from verse 17 through 24. And when he says Jews, he's talking about the Christian Jews. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another do not teach yourself. You preach that a man should not steal, but do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? And what he's saying is, we are quick to point the finger, but aren't these same sins, or at least the idea behind these same sins, as powerfully and prevalent in us as they are in the world that we condemn? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God though through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. So here's what he's trying to say. Church, we can't just say, man, they're so far gone because he says God is blasphemed when we lose confidence in his ability to save people. And more importantly, when we lack the power of God working in our own lives. The solution is that we begin hearing the very word we wave at those outside the church who may very well be in the wrong, but we're right there with them in a lot of ways. I think the erosion of morality and sexuality in our world has impacted the church in ways that may underestimate. Let me explain. There's something that's always, that always happens when we become so indignant towards others' sins. We let our guard down in our own homes and in our own souls. Now, you might not do this, but this is a potential in all of us. I speak from experience. Satan's specialty is to pounce and to turn concern into contempt and turn a condescending spirit into an arrogant one. Beware of this. Satan is about to tempt, anytime this happens, Satan is about to tempt you in ways you've never been tempted to test you. Are you growing in condemnation and contempt or are you praying for and becoming compassionate for the very people you claim to be concerned about? Satan has a track record of fanning the flames of indignation, inspiring self-righteousness, which leads to hypocrisy. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as righteous indignation, but beware how Satan turns that indignation into self-righteousness and not humility and trust in Christ's righteousness. This isn't to say there is not moral decline in our world, there is, but I say this to bring our attention to the fact that I think we've lost, I think we've all lost sight of God's intentions for morality. God designed for men and women separate and together, whether involved or simply alongside each other. We all need to repent and be restored to this, to the image of God in full. I think we can learn a lot from this approach for the New Testament addresses in its original audience, specifically how the Apostle Paul spoke to the first century of churches. Now, I want to explain this to you before we close. If you've ever wondered why Paul sounds like a broken record when it comes to repeating a very non-negotiable sexual ethic in the New Testament, it's because he is working to establish a brand new paradigm for the world. A world that in its current state was as morally bankrupt as you could imagine in ways that, again, would make the most worldly people ashamed. None of what has been associated with the sexual revolution of the last hundred years pertaining to orientation and gender, none of that's new. It may seem new, but it's not new. 
It was all front and center and well-established in the Greco-Roman world of 2,000 years ago. And I am not exaggerating, and I know our kids aren't here, but I am toning this down just to not make us lose focus. First century Rome had built its institutions around pedophilia, polygamy, trafficking, prostitution, and incest. It wasn't turned away from, it was celebrated. This was the world the church was taking the gospel into. And you can imagine, nobody thought it was going to work. Nobody. It was a culture of men doing whatever they wanted with whomever they wanted because for centuries that was the dream and religion supported it. It was a culture of women desperately seeking to break free from what could mostly be described as slavery. In the Roman Empire, you had men with a warped and elevated view of their own gender and sexuality, women with a damaged and depressed or lowered understanding of their own gender and sexuality. This explains why Paul is so adamant about men and women understanding God's original and forever intent, his design of our gender and how sexuality fits into that. Gender was pretty much a lost concept. Ethics and morality bowed to hedonism in these days. In the Roman Empire, morality was determined by social status, not gender, based on power and lust, not dignity and respect. Women were shared. Children were used. Slaves were forced. Paul, in many ways, was trying to restore order to creation. Through God, through Paul, God was trying to show the true picture of his image, his vision for men and women, representing him on earth. And a true understanding of this explains why Paul desired churches to be led by accountable men who had shirked accountability and knew nothing of humble, protective leadership. It also helps understand his instruction of women's role in the church in the first century, which was never an order against women in ministry, but literally about women giving place to men as the head, allowing both genders to heal from thousands of years of brokenness. Beyond gender roles, Paul's teaching on the human body was truly radical, and that will humble and bring repentance to even the most straight edge of persons. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a young Corinthian church community that was still entrenched in Romans' ideas of hedonism, which yielded to whatever felt right. Men saw women as objects, even other men as objects. Women saw men as their opponents because they saw themselves as just property. There was no trust between the two. But here's the greater issue. Men and women had a purely physical understanding of self. They only saw a body, not realizing that they were a soul, that they were spiritual. This was the Christian way of introducing people to who they really were, turn, which would in change turn the way they saw themselves and others. And before we quit, I want you to t- turn over to 1 Corinthians and listen to this. And, and this isn't radical to you because you've heard this since you were a kid. But in light of what we just talked about, in light of how way out in left field the Roman Empire was, listen to how, listen to the words that Paul says to the Corinthian church and think about how radical this must have sounded to those people. He's quoting them in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. It was a saying in Corinth that all things are lawful or I can do whatever I want to do. But Paul says it does not mean that it's good for you. Food for the stomach, stomach for the foods, but God will destroy both in, it, it, in them. 
Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up in his power. So Paul's trying to think, get us to think about this. What we do with our bodies in this life has an impact with who we are beyond this life. Do you not know? And the reason why he says this, asks this question, they didn't know. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And that's not just pertaining to females. That's just any immoral sexual encounter with someone. Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined with a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, listen, this is the big thing. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That was brand new for them. Brand new and radical to hear. The most obscure and hated facet of Christianity in the first century, as hard as it may be to believe, it wasn't that, they, that Christianity believed a man came from heaven and died for the sins of the world. As radical as that was, and the Romans thought that was crazy. As much as that was an obstacle for Romans to give Christianity any credence, the most unbelievable and outright laughable tenet of Christianity was its radical and unthinkable sexual ethic. Paul sought to restore distinction and diversity to the understanding of gender, to celebrate the difference, honor the uniqueness, and protect the vulnerabilities. Our bodies do not belong to us, Paul says. We were created by, designed by, and need to be guided by God our Father. The most unaligned and skewed perception of our nature may be our misunderstanding of sexuality. And why is this important for you? No matter what age you are, what season of life you're in, somebody is looking to you for advice on this because if you don't give it to them, there is a line of people out there ready to give it to them. Right, church? So what does Paul say? Men, women, our body's greatest need is not pleasure. That was completely unheard of to the Romans in the first century. What do you mean my body's greatest need isn't pleasure? What else is it for? It's for God. That's what. You mean that there's something to be found in this life by serving God that isn't just obeying every urge and unction of my body? Is that actually a possibility? And Paul says, yes, it is. Other bodies are not objects of our own pleasure. Again, this is, we think this is, this is like Christianity 101 for us, but this was so big for them. Our greatest need. Our greatest need is submission to God. Other bodies' greatest demand is godly respect. I, I know this may sound like elementary advice, but if we would just live by those two points, what a difference our world might would feel. Bodies are like temples. Temples in the ancient world were where you went to observe the image of God. Where the image of God was on display and embodied. 
a few things about temples. Temples are holy, sacred, and very impressionable. They're set apart. Temples were set apart because it was in them that holy business took place. It's in you that the Holy Spirit of God lives. You are set apart for him. And why should we conform to this world's version or image of us? You're sacred. Sacred things are fragile as in they can easily chip, they can easily break, they can easily be marred. We know all about that, don't we? Temples are impressionable. As in the stories that are told and the things that happen will leave an impression, will leave a legacy. When it comes to sexuality and gender, this is the most serious conversation we can have about the image of God because this is the one we get most wrong. Yes, our world has immersed itself in ungodly practices, but the Roman world was just like it, probably worse. But you know why you don't think about that? And you know why for nearly 1900 years, the world had taken on a nearly puritanical understanding of sexuality? You know why that even became a word, puritanical? Because in less than 300 years, all of those ungodly practices were abandoned and shunned by the Roman Empire. Even those that didn't join the church, the light was so bright that even the slightest notion of perversion was considered unthinkable. You know what happened? People started living as if they were and relating to others as if they were actual images of God. People started taking cues from God's word and design. Men and women understood the other as their equals, never their objects. Men and women started listening to the spirit and the word to guide them relationally, maritally, sexually, and never they never their flesh or the world. Men and women forsook lust and chose love, agape, sacrificial, submissive love. Church, this is what we need. This is what our world needs. Standing for what's right is great, but standing out is better and living out is godly and biblical. So in a world where the image of God is most marred when it comes to morality, may we strive to put on display a clear and pure picture of God's design for our bodies. What does that mean? That means we must denounce extramarital, frivolous and emotional sexual content and sin as much as we decry same sex and unnatural orientations. Can we agree on this? We wring our hands over the bottom part. But this top part, it is eating every church, every marriage, every relationship from the inside out. And if the church thinks it can ignore that, if men and women in holy matrimony think they can ignore that, and think the bottom part is the worst threat to their children, we are so deceived. We've got to reject seeing others as objects and value and honor them as equals. That should be first day of class material. Sadly, it's not. We must live pure and Christ-like lives, respecting our own bodies and valuing every other body. Church, this is what can spark another Roman revolution. But here's what I know. 
Our moral authority is the only hope for our world's moral purity. The church living out what our Bible teaches is the only hope for moral purity. It's our only pathway to God, back to God, and it's his word. May, it may seem impossible, but you know who wants this more than anyone? You do. Conviction. You know what conviction is? It's your own soul. It's your own flesh trembling that God might break through. Conviction is your own flesh thinking, I'm vulnerable. I'm about to give in. Don't let it fight. Don't let the flesh and don't let the enemy deceive you longer. It begins by realizing who we are, whose image we bear. We, me, you, everyone, we are temples of God, holy, sacred, impressionable, from the thing you see on a screen to the person you see across from you. Images of God. What a difference our world would look like if we all looked at ourselves and others through this lens. God may be able to say once again, and it was very good. There's still hope. It begins with us responding to God's ever pursuit. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And because of that, I shall, I can dwell in the house of the Lord. Not this building, but my body is a temple of the very living God. He goes with you. What do you do with the body he's given you? And what do you think of the other body across from you? It means much more than we may have realized. Church, this is a serious conversation, one that would be easy for me as a pastor to avoid, easy for a church to avoid, and easy to point the finger at others being guilty of. But what if the people of God would say, we're going to get this right, and we're going to teach our children and their children, that this is non-negotiable. This is everything. It may make us stand out that much more. It may make us that much different. But that might be just what the world needs. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord, this is just all too sacred and too much for me to do justice in talking about. But there is a world out there that is hurting there are broken relationships, there are broken people. And somewhere they got off track. Truth be told, they didn't need much help. Our nature took, them, took us there. But Lord, we have confidence that your goodness is chasing after us. And, and we wanna be a people, we wanna raise children and we wanna raise grandchildren and we wanna foster communities where people get this and know how important it is. And as easy it is to point the finger at some examples that are most detestable, help us not ignore what we are so prone and so likely to do ourselves. Whether it stays in our mind or whether it goes beyond. Lord, I pray you would purify us. And Lord, if somebody here this morning can say they're, they're as sexually pure as they've ever been or as anybody in the world, would you give them a burden to pray for those that continue to struggle or maybe be in a situation where they desperately need somebody to look at and follow after? God, I think all of us know how weak our minds are and know how vulnerable we are, but help us to see that we are temples of the living God.
Help that to make a difference with every step we take. Yes, we are fragile. Yes, we are impressionable. We're also holy. And that means you are with us and for us in ways the world will never experience. But we can show the world that if we'll be faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.